You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Again, my name is John Aiken, and I do work for the North American Mission Board, and uh, I'm excited to be with you today. I, I actually got to preach here probably about three or four years ago, and the church has grown and changed a lot since then, so I'm, I'm really thankful to be back here today. I hope you guys know uh, how blessed you are to be a part of a, of a growing church like Foothills and to have a great pastor like Pastor Trent and the staff that serves you. You are, are very blessed, and so I'm excited to be with you this morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts 16. We are marching through the book of Acts, and today we're going to come to Acts chapter uh, 16, and we're going to look at story here of how the gospel, the good news about how Jesus has come to save us from our sins, invades a a city called Philippi here in Acts chapter 16. Uh, One of the things that I do with uh, my children before they go to bed at night is I I will read scripture with them and and pray with them. And hopefully if you have uh, children in the home, you do something like that with your kids. But uh, several months ago, my youngest son, Judson, uh, and I were, were in his room and get the Jesus Storybook Bible out and Every night he picks a story out, and, and then we pray. And so that night, uh, several months ago, it started a trend with us. He, he picked the story, I don't know if you guys know the story, where Jesus uh, is, is playing with the little kids, and, and the disciples are trying to block the kids from coming to Jesus, and Jesus rebukes them and says, you don't keep, you don't keep the children from coming to me, you don't hinder them, let them come. And he, he says, of such is the kingdom of God, right? And he's, he's putting them on his lap, and he's playing with them, and he's He's hugging them. And so we, we read this story uh, several months ago, and my son was just so taken by that story. He said, Dad, I wish Jesus would come, come and play with me. And, uh, and so that night when we, when we prayed, he said, you know, Dad, please pray that Jesus would come down so I could see him and I could spend time with him uh, and, and play with him. And so I, so I did. And so since that night, if I ever forget that in the prayer, he'll kind of stop me mid-sentence and say, Dad, don't forget want Jesus to come down and see me. So like most nights, it's just kind of, Lord, please be with Judson, help him have a good night's sleep, save him from his sins, use him for your glory. And then I'll say, amen. He says, dad, you forgot to say, I I want Jesus to come down uh, and to be with me. Last year when his, uh, his birthday party was, was getting close, he, he was inviting Darth Vader and Jesus. He wanted both of them to come (laughs) and to be at his birthday party. Um, but in, in a, in a very real way, the point of the book of Acts is that Jesus is on planet earth and he is active and he's, he's changing the world and the way he's doing that is through his church, right? That he, he leaves his spirit on his followers so that we can continue his ministry after he's gone. That's what the book of Luke is about. Luke, uh, excuse me, Acts. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, says at the beginning to this man named Theophilus, I wrote the first book, which is the gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, which means the book of Acts is about what Jesus continues to do through his church. And and the book is about how Jesus is laying claim to planet earth. He's advancing his kingdom. He's advancing his salvation to the ends of the earth. It starts in Jerusalem and then goes into Judea and Samaria. And then through the ministry of the apostle Paul and his mission trips, starts to go all over the Middle East And then now in Acts 16, finally, it's going to transition from the Middle East into Europe, okay? And it's going to come to this Roman colony called Philippi, which was kind of a a leading city in that area because it was a Roman colony. People who would retire from the Roman army, uh, for example, would settle there. It was just kind of a little 
it was a little Rome in that area, in that region of the world. And so we see this story where the gospel is just going from town to town, from region to region, where people are hearing about how Jesus died and rose from the dead, and they are coming to believe in him. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Trent did a great job of explaining the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And so when Paul took his first mission trip, one of the controversies that that brought up was all of these non-Jews, Gentiles, were becoming believers in Christ. And so they had a meeting in Jerusalem to say, okay, all these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ, are we going to require them to keep the Old Testament law if they really want to be part of the church? And Paul and Peter and James' brother Jesus said, no, all that you need to be a believer, to be saved, to have a right relationship with God, to be in the church is faith plus nothing else. You don't need to add to it obedience to the Old Testament law. And so then Paul decides after that council, I'm going to go back on another mission trip to all the churches that I started on my first mission trip, and I'm going to tell them what the council uh, said so that they can be encouraged and so they can continue to grow. And that's what this, this second mission trip, it starts here in Acts chapter 16. Now, before it happens, uh, Paul and Barnabas, the first mission team, break up over a, a, an argument about taking John Mark with them. John Mark abandoned them on the first trip. And so Paul said, I don't want him on this trip. So, so John Mark and Barnabas form another mission team that goes to another area. Paul takes a man named Silas, and they start going to these churches that, they had start, that Paul had started on the first mission trip, telling them about what had happened, strengthening them, and they're, they're growing daily. On the way, he picks up Timothy, a, man, a young man that he had led to faith in Christ on the first trip, and he, he joins the team. Uh, and then, as we're going to see in verse 10, actually Luke, who's writing this book, joins the team because... The, the grammar shifts, and I know it's kind of early for a grammar lesson, but it shifts from uh, third person, they, to first person, we, are seeing all these things take place. And so they're going through all of these towns, uh, trying to strengthen the churches. And then once they've done that, it's time to advance the gospel into places it's never gone before, where they don't know the name of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus, the text tells us, blocks them from going into a region called Asia Minor, and instead sends them into an area uh, called Macedonia, where they are going to go to a city called Philippi. And we see in this story how Jesus continues to advance his salvation, again, coming from the Middle East and now moving into Europe. And those of us in this room who are of European descent, you need to thank God for chapter 16 and that the gospel got into Europe and that somebody brought it here and shared it with you. And so we're going to see that, that story this morning. So if you would, Acts 16 and verse 11, we're going to read down through the end of the chapter. And if you would, would you please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God. Acts chapter 16 and verse 11, Dr. Luke wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So setting sail from Traos, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day... The magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. They came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So this is an amazing story about how Jesus, through his church, invades the city of Philippi and, and brings people from all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of, of different situations to faith and forms the church there at Philippi. And again, just what we see here is this very interesting uh, shift from one person who is religious and wealthy and moral to this girl who is enslaved and destitute and demon-possessed, then to this jailer who's just part of the, the establishment and the, the cog there in Philippi, and, and all of these different types of people in different types of circumstances, how they're being impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, how Jesus is, is marching his kingdom, advancing his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And the amazing thing about this is that this story of how Jesus is laying claim to planet earth we get to have a part in it. We get to play a role in it. And I want us to see, as I, I'll tell the story again very quickly and then ask this question, what part do, do I play in it? What part do you play in it? So Paul comes in with Silas to this city in Philippi and he does what he normally does. He tries to find a religious gathering like a synagogue or here it's a, a prayer meeting at the riverside where he's gonna go and he's gonna minister to people who already are religious who already accept the Old Testament as the word of God. And so he goes to this prayer meeting and, and all he does is just the, the simple opening of the Old Testament and explaining to them from the Old Testament, okay, all of these 
promises and these prophecies about a Savior who's going to come, that Savior's name is Jesus, and he's come, and he died, and he rose again. And so again, these are religious people used to having religious conversations, and as he simply teaches the word, Luke says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart, this, this wealthy woman who's a seller of purple, her heart is open, she believes, then she shows that she has believed by being baptized, and then she asks for Paul to let her house be the home base for the church. So the church at Philippi is going to meet at her house. Then we see this other encounter where Paul is on his way to the prayer meeting day after day, and they run into this slave girl. Now again, she's the complete opposite of, of Lydia. Lydia is an older woman, a wealthy woman. She is younger, probably a teenager. She's poor. She is doubly enslaved. She's enslaved physically. She has owners who are using her for profit, and she is enslaved spiritually. She is possessed by a demon, which enables her to, in some way, be a fortune teller who tells the future, which brings a lot of profit to her owners. And she encounters Paul and Silas as they're walking to the prayer meeting and begins to yell out, right, these men are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you about the way of salvation, which shouldn't be a shock to us, right? If you look at the Gospels, for example, when Jesus encounters demons, they say right things about him, right? Right, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, have you come to destroy us? That's what uh, the, the demon legion says to Jesus. And so this slave girl, demon-possessed, is following them around, saying right things about them. And, and funnily enough, Luke says that eventually, after she does this day after day, Paul gets annoyed. Now, those of you who are parents, uh, especially parents of young children, you probably understand what, what Paul's dealing with here, right? Now, I don't mean, I'm not saying your kids are demon-possessed, okay? Now, some of you are like, I don't know, sometimes I just can't tell what they're going to do. But I mean just the, the constant harping of something that, that begins to annoy you. Have you ever experienced that as a, as a parent? Uh, one of the funniest things, uh, funniest stories that in our, our house was my wife uh, is Ashley. We have, we have three kids, two, two girls and a boy. One day she had them in the, in the van, you know, and they're, they're driving around and it's just constant, mom, mom, mom. And they're bickering with each other and it's just, mom, 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 he did this, mom, she did that, mom, tell him to stop, da, da, da. And so finally my wife had it, right? And she's like, that's it? My name's not mom anymore. The next person that says mom is gonna be in big trouble. And so the car just it gets, you know, dead quiet for a couple minutes. And then all of a sudden my, our middle daughter, Emma, from the back, says, Ashley, and uh, everybody, everybody breaks up laughing, you know, and it was, it was okay, but if you've got, if you've got kids, you understand like the, this, this constant harping, you know, begins to annoy you, and that's what, that's what happens here with Paul. Now, there, there's two possibilities here. Likely, he could be annoyed because of the, the confusion about what this girl is saying in that context. If you remember in, in high school, if you ever uh, you know, had to read like the Odyssey or something like that, that Greek mythology, Roman mythology, you know that in that, that day, that people in a Roman colony believed in hundreds of different gods, right? You've got, you've got Jupiter and you've got Mars and you've got all these different gods that the, the Romans uh, believed in. And so the fear could be that this, as she's saying these things, that Paul and Silas are missionaries just trying to add one more God to the hundred gods that you already worship. And Paul wants there to be a distinction. No, we're talking about the one true God, not some God to add to the gods you already believe in. The other issue could be that he's just, he's just grieved by her condition. And so finally, after uh, several days, with the authority of Jesus, he says, in the name of Jesus, and he casts the demon out. And when that happens, 
Again, just like if today you were to free a girl who is being trafficked and, and, and cause uh, her owners to lose profit, they're gonna be mad at you. And these men are, are ticked off at Paul and Silas. They drag them in front of the authorities. They trump up charges. These men are disturbing the peace. The, the mob joins in with them, okay? And they end up getting beaten with rods, okay? So their backs are bloody, thrown in jail, uh, feet fastened to these stocks, you know, chains on their arms, no doubt cramping because they can't change the position of their body. And in that circumstance, the, Luke tells us at midnight, they're praying and they're singing hymns of thanksgiving to God. No doubt that left a mark on the jailer. And then there's an earthquake. Everybody's freed from their chains. And uh, how Paul, the, the most amazing thing Paul does in this chapter is to get all the prisoners not to bolt, right? When the, when the chains, chains fall off. And so the jailer comes in. He sees that they're not in their, their chains. He gets ready to kill himself. And again, we need to understand just how how fearful this would be, how, how awful of a circumstance this would be. We, we kind of fall into this like, this VBSification of, of the Bible stories where we kind of, they, they t- it takes off all of the edge of what's going on. I mean, imagine if there was a maximum security prison in Blunt County and you woke up this morning to the report, there was an earthquake last night and every single inmate escaped and they're loose in the community and we don't know where they are. Attendance at church probably be a little bit less today. I'd say, okay? And so that when he sees this, he, he understands, like, this is a disaster. He's about to kill himself, and then Paul stops him and says, no, no, we're, we're all here, and then he just falls at his feet. What must I do to be saved? And Paul shares the gospel. He believes, takes Paul back to his house, shares with his family. They believe, they're baptized. The next day, when the government finds out they've, they've treated them in a wrong way, they want to cover it over quietly, and Paul says, uh-uh, that ain't happening. Have them march us out in public, okay? You say, why would Paul insist on his rights like that? Probably the reason why is because he knew that this baby church that had just formed needed protection. He didn't want them to treat them the same way that he was treated once he was gone. And so he did that for their sake. And then they march him out. They say, why don't you leave the city? And what does he do? He says, okay, first I'm going to the church. And so he goes to Lydia's house and he strengthens the brothers and then he, and then he moves on, which is amazing. So you had Philippi, there was no church. Now, after Paul's been there for however long he was there, we don't know everybody that made up that church, but we at least know this. There's a wealthy woman named Lydia and her family that are there. There's a middle-class man, this jailer and his family that are there. And then there's this, this poor girl who used to be a slave who, who probably had to move in with Lydia or move in with the jailer and his family because she had no means uh, of, of making any money for herself. And so you've got this little band of believers who are loving each other, taking care of each other, and are growing in Christ. And Paul says, you're now brothers and your sisters. These people who would have never, ever seen or hung out with each other, they're calling each other brother and sister. And then Paul marches on to the next city to do this again and again and again. And the question I want us to ask this morning is, what part do we have to play in this story? Okay? And so there's three, there's three basic parts, three basic roles that we see in this story. Number, number one is this. If you're a believer in this room, if you're a believer, your role is to witness, okay? Your role as a believer is to witness. Now, we see witness in four different ways in this story. The first one is Paul, right, religious setting where people already accept the Bible, where they're used to having religious conversation, and it's just the quiet, simple teaching of the Word of God. Lydia's heart is open and she believes. Now, 
No doubt, I would, I would wager that if you're a believer here, that many of you, if not most of you, that was your experience of how you came to faith in Christ, right? Just some religious setting, maybe a youth group or Sunday school class or vacation Bible school or worship gathering like this or revival, you in that religious setting heard somebody preach the Bible, tell you about Jesus and his salvation and you came forward or talked to a friend afterwards or talked to a youth leader or Sunday school teacher and you came to faith in Christ, okay? That's the way a lot of people, especially in American context, come to faith in Christ. And so that's, that's instructive for us. If you're a believer, one way that you can be involved in this mission that God has given to us is to invite people to church with you because you know Pastor Trent's gonna preach the gospel and they're gonna hear about Jesus. And so bring friends with you to church. Bring friends with you to small group. Bring friends with you to the youth group, okay? And, and then those of you who are leaders in small group or youth group uh, who teach from the stage or whatever, make sure in all of those group sessions and all of those teaching opportunities, you're teaching the gospel faithfully, simply, powerfully, so that people can come to faith in Jesus Christ. The second way that we see is not the quiet, simple teaching of the word, but the powerful invocation of the authority of Jesus, right? In the name of Jesus, come out of her, okay? This, this girl who is enslaved physically, enslaved spiritually, Paul speaks with the authority of Jesus, and she is freed, okay? And we need to be ready to minister in those circumstances as well. Now, certainly we do need to be ready to minister in terms of physical slavery, sex trafficking, and so forth. Um, and there's, there's many ways to get involved in that. One, I would say you're already involved in that uh, because I, I work for the North American Mission Board and, and Foothills is partners with the North American Mission Board. And one of the things we do is, is send relief where we work in helping girls to get out of uh, sex trafficking. And we, we work with churches to, to train them and how to do that in their area, how to spot certain things and how to help girls get out of that relationship, out of that, uh, that situation. And so as you give to Foothills and Foothills partners with North American Mission Board, you're getting to be involved in that kind of ministry. But also you're gonna be involved in and you're gonna be surrounded by people who are enslaved spiritually. Okay, it may be some kind of demon possession. It may be uh, some kind of sin that somebody goes back to over and over and again. It could be um, some kind of a, a substance that they are uh, addicted to, uh, it, some kind of spiritual enslavement. And you need to be ready to speak with the authority and power of Jesus and say, Jesus is able to free you if you will believe in him. The third way that we see in this uh, passage, again, is amazing, is Paul and Silas joyfully worshiping the Lord in the midst of suffering, right? Joyfully worshiping the Lord in the midst of suffering. They, they've been beaten, they're bloodied, they've been treated unfairly, and at midnight, they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. This is, in, this is incredible, right? I mean, not to be too, too harsh here, but I, I, I know some Christians who, you don't even sing in the worship gathering, right? You're just standing there like with your arms folded, like I, I'm just not the type of person who sings. Much less when you're in jail for something you didn't do as a testimony to the, to the goodness and the power of God. And so when you, when you have opportunity to sing as a means of worship and to, to testify to the greatness of God, do it. Like when you're here, this is awesome. You need to sing and pour out your heart and model for your children, model for your family what it means to sing praises to King Jesus. But also when you're in the midst of suffering, 
You need to be ready to testify to God's greatness as a, as a powerful indicator to everybody around you that Jesus is enough for you. Like my, my fear and my, my question for us is, is, is one of the reasons why our witness is often so powerless is because we don't look like we have something that unbelievers want. And we act just the exact same way that they do when things go bad. Right? I mean, how striking would this be? Like, one of the ways I, I kind of think about this, like, what would it be for somebody just to start belting out singing in a, in a setting where people aren't used to singing? And immediately, post-Christmas, my mind goes to the movie Elf, right? And so he's, I'm in a store and I'm singing, right? And it's just, it's kind of striking for somebody to start singing in a place where, like, even right now, you're like, man, that's weird, the, the preacher's singing up there. That's, I, don't, I don't get it. Um, and so that would have been very striking in and of itself. But then you kind of add Shawshank Redemption to Elf. He's singing in prison. And so it's a, it's a very, very striking thing. And there's no doubt that the jailer is thinking to himself, maybe even the jailer who had beaten them and handcuffed them is thinking, my goodness, these guys have something that, that I have no idea about. And so when the earthquake comes and the opportunity to bolt comes and Paul and Silas don't take it, right? If it's me, I'm out the door, and I'm probably going back home to my church and giving testimony about how God miraculously saved my life and delivered me from prison, right? But they don't do that. Why? Because they know that their lives aren't just about them, and they are ready to minister to this, this man. And so the question is, how do we respond when we suffer? Are, are, we, are we complaining like everybody else, or do we see it as an opportunity to witness? Pastor Trent, a couple weeks ago, and, and when he was preaching through Acts 14, talked about how the disciples, the early church, didn't see suffering as a sign that they were outside of God's will. They saw it as a sign that they had an opportunity to, to be a witness for Christ. And so do we take that opportunity when we are suffering, when we are experiencing something that may be unfair and may be unjust? Are we ready to worship him and to testify to his greatness and his sufficiency that Jesus is enough? He is much greater than my circumstances. And when he, when he does that, again, they have this opportunity to share with the jailer. He says, you have something I don't. What must I do to be saved? And they share the gospel with him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The fourth way that we see uh, witness in this passage is the two times, there's two times in the text where we're told that a person comes to Christ and then that person's household comes to Christ, okay? And household is a, is a term that could mean family members, could mean servants, it could mean uh, all kinds of things. Uh, and so we see Lydia come to Christ and her household, and then we see the jailer come to Christ and his household. And that's instructive for us, that if you are a believer, that one of the reasons why God has saved you and has saved you in the place that you are is because he wants to use you to reach your friends and family members for Christ. That he wants you through your relational networks to reach those people for Christ. This is the way that God's salvation has spread throughout the Bible. Like, you remember, story after story. Noah, right? God saves Noah. Through Noah, saves Noah's entire family. Rahab, in the battle of Jericho, saves Rahab, but through Rahab, saves her entire family. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man in the, in the Gospels. And the demon-possessed man, once he's freed, says, I want to come with you. I want to go with you wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, I want you to go back to your hometown because you need to tell your friends and your family members about me. 
the Samaritan woman, right, that he meets at the well, what happens when Jesus changed her life? She goes back into town to all of her friends, all of her family members, and says, let me tell you about what this man did, what he told me. You see it throughout the book of Acts. Cornelius, when he gets saved, all of his friends and family members are saved as well. You're going to see this in a couple of weeks with a man named Crispus in, uh, in Corinth, okay? And so over and over and over again throughout the Bible, God saves one person so that through that person, they, God can save his or her relational network. And that's the way that Christianity has spread like wildfire throughout history. Like today, this is what's happening right now. Today in, in Muslim contexts and in Buddhist contexts and places all over the world, missionaries are meeting with people and they're sharing the gospel with them. And when a person comes to faith in Christ, what they do is they say, okay, listen, what, what I want you to do right now, right now, the moment you've believed, is I want you to write down on a list. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait with you. I'm gonna write down on a list every single person that you know who's not a believer. Every single person you know who's not a believer. So they'll write down on this list every person they know who's not a believer. And then the missionary says to this, this brand new believer, okay, I want you to pray and ask God to show you three or four or five people that this week on that list that he wants you to share the gospel with. And then you're gonna come back next week and you're gonna report to me what's going on. And so they, they, they pray over that list, they go out, they share the gospel, and you know what happens if one of those three to five, if they share the gospel with that person, that, that person becomes a believer? Then this brand new believer then leads that brand new believer and says, okay, right now I want you to write down every single person on this list that you know who's not a believer, and I want you to pray for three to five people to share with this week, and just boom, 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 boom. The gospel's multiplying around the world as people, the moment they believe, see it as their mission, as their task to evangelize their networks, okay? And that's, this is what we have been called to. This is what you and I need to do. Think of a list, write down a list of people you know who are not believers or that you aren't sure are believers. Pray to God for an opportunity to share with them and then share with them. And then if they do come to Christ, have them do the exact same thing. Now you say, John, I, I don't know how to share my faith and what if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to and I'm, I'm just not sure about all of this. Well, what I'd, I'd say that you don't have to know every answer and you don't have to give the whole gospel. And you don't have to know how to outline the book of Revelation to be a witness for Christ. One of the most powerful stories that, I, that I've ever heard, uh, there's, a, there's a pastor named CJ that, that God has used to plant churches everywhere and, and has reached thousands of people for Christ. The way that CJ came to Christ was, CJ was a drug addict um, in the late 70s, early 80s. He was a drug addict. And one of his friends who, who had basically brought him into drug addiction left their hometown in the Northeast and, and moved to Florida. And within a few weeks of moving to Florida, went to a Baptist church, heard the good news about Jesus, got saved, and then decided that God wanted him to go back to the Northeast and to share the gospel with all of his friends. And you know what CJ said when he's telling his testimony? He said, and by the grace of God, I was one of his friends. And he goes, goes back to the Northeast, just been a believer a few weeks. CJ said he, he hardly knew anything, but he knew enough. And he just began to tell me about Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. And, and at some point, as CJ heard that, he he believed and he trusted Christ and his life was radically changed. And so I would say this, that story, and there's thousands of stories like that, prove you don't have to know everything to be a believer. But the question I want you to ask yourself is, a year from now, five years from now, in eternity, who will look back and say, thank God by his grace that John Aiken was one of my friends? Or that... Pamela was one of my friends or Bill was one of my friends because they shared the gospel with me. If you're a believer, that is your calling. Second, 
Second is God's role. God's role is to save. We see this uh, in the three different kind of salvations here in Philippi, which is, which is remarkable. If you uh, remember in Paul's first mission trip in chapter 14 and 13, 14, uh, Luke was mainly focusing on the crowds and how the crowds were responding to Paul's preaching. And now here in Philippi, he shifts to individuals, not just the crowd, but individuals to show that Jesus can save every type of person, okay? Which is interesting that, that a Jewish man, we are told tradition in tradition, would wake up every morning and pray a prayer, something like, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a Gentile, and that I'm not a slave. And those are the three people that we see come to faith here as he's showing Jesus can, can permeate every level of society, and no matter what your condition or what your background, he can bring you to faith. You can be a wealthy religious, moral person like Lydia, and still Jesus needs to open your heart to understand the gospel so that you can respond. Or you can be a poor, enslaved, spiritually and physically teenager like this girl, and Jesus is powerful enough to free you from what enslaves you. Or you can be a middle-class family man, part of the government system, and thank God government officials can be saved too by Jesus. Uh, and doesn't matter what your condition or what your situation, Jesus can save in every single instance. And he does so powerfully and he does so miraculously. And so that's very instructive for us, what happens here at Philippi, for a couple of different reasons. First is this, and I know this happens a lot with people who, who grow up in church culture, is that, that you hear testimonies like dramatic, powerful testimonies like this, like the slave girl, and then you think, man, I just... I just trusted Christ, you know, before bed one night as my mom shared the gospel with me and I, I prayed to receive Jesus and, and my, my conversion wasn't dramatic. And, but here's the thing. This story is so instructive for us because the quiet teaching of the word with no fanfare whatsoever saves Lydia who becomes home base for the church at Philippi. And then you've got the powerful, dramatic exorcism that Paul does with this slave girl, but both of them are miraculous. And so don't trouble yourself if your conversion was quiet and, and was without drama. It was still powerful and miraculous. See, God was no more miraculous in saving, in saving Lydia than he was in saving this girl. And our problem, what, what we do, is not only do we downplay our own salvation because we think our testimony isn't that dramatic, but we begin to categorize people that we look at in the world. We, we make evaluations and say, well, that person is likely to trust in Christ and that kind of person is not likely to trust in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Is it easier for God to open the heart of a churchgoer than it is for him to open the heart of somebody who's never been in church? Answer, no. They're both easy for him. Is it easier for Jesus to open the heart of a drug-addicted teenager or a middle-class family man? The answer is no. He can and he does both. And so we need to stop categorizing people as, well, that's the kind of person who would come to faith in Christ. Or to, to comfort ourselves and say, well, we're the type of people who would respond to Christ. No, every sinner outside of Jesus needs the saving power of Jesus in their life in order for them to be transformed and in order for them to be made new. And so whether it is a 
uh, again, a nice teenager and a, who's grown up in a Christian family and has come to church every day since he was born, or a, or a teenage girl who's had an abortion, or a drug-addicted convict, or a porn-addicted father, or a Muslim in your community or halfway around the world, Jesus is powerful enough to save every single one of them. So we play our part, we share in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus does his part, he opens hearts to respond to the gospel. And the final thing that we see here is the unbeliever. The unbeliever's part is to believe. You may be here today, you may not be a believer in Jesus Christ. You uh, have been brought by somebody or invite, somebody invited you and you came or you, uh, you're a skeptic, you're just checking things out. Maybe you're growing up in a Christian home and you just come to church, this is what you do. And so you always come and you always hear these messages and you always hear the singing and this is just a part of your life. I don't know what your situation here as an unbeliever, what I do know is this, no matter what your situation is, there is nobody in this room who is beyond the saving reach of Jesus. And there is nobody in this room who doesn't need the saving touch of Jesus. And so whether you're in this room and you are a religious person like Lydia, and you've heard this stuff over and over and over and over again, you need to recognize that if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you need to repent and do that today. That being a church goer does not make you a Christian, does not make you a child of God. And so you need to repent and you need to believe. Maybe you're in this room and you are like the, the girl. You're enslaved in some way, maybe to a sin, maybe to a lifestyle, maybe to a substance. Maybe you've been mistreated and you think, man, I've been abused by people like she was abused by her owners and I don't know that my, my life could ever be made new. If that's you, if you are enslaved or you have been abused, you need to believe that Jesus is powerful enough to free you and is powerful enough to save you and that you are not beyond his reach. Trust that that is true. And you may be in here, you may be like the jailer, just a middle-class family person just going through life, getting the kids to school and making sure they're at practice on time and making sure you work your job and just being a faithful employee. You need to recognize Jesus and only Jesus can change you and change your family. And you need to believe in him. And then once you do, the next steps, very clear in this passage, you need to make a public profession of your faith. And the way you do that is by being baptized. So if you're a believer and you've never been baptized, you need to talk to church leaders about being baptized. You need to join with a church family. So you can be part of a, a small group of brothers and sisters in Christ who are loving each other and taking care of each other. That's why um, Foothills is doing the small group connect today uh, between the services. If you're not involved in a small group, you need to be. I mean, it's an amazing thing, right? Again, these people who were disconnected from each other, never, never seen each other before. Now they're taking care of each other and they're calling each other brother and sister. It's an amazing thing and you need to be part of something like that. And then you need to get busy reaching your relationships, your relational network for Christ. Classmates, coworkers, family members, friends, neighbors, and sharing with them what Jesus has done in your life. And as you play your part, then Jesus does his part and he begins to change and save people eternally. One of the ways that uh, this came home to me and crystal clear for me was, was training people to take mission trips. When I, let me show you this book. It's called The Gospel for Muslims, written by a man named Thabidi Anyabwile. And when I was a pastor and, and we would take people to, uh, uh, on mission trips to the Middle East, 
we would require them, we'd go to a Muslim context, we'd require them to read this book, okay, so they can learn how to share their faith with a Muslim. And, and what's great about that book is that the, the central thesis is basically just the best way to share the gospel with Muslims is to share the gospel with Muslims. Like, trust that the good news is powerful enough to save them. But one of the reasons why it's, it's a really helpful book is Thabiti, who wrote it, grew up, uh, he was a Muslim when he was a child and, and even into his, his early adulthood. And then he was saved uh, by Jesus and became a pastor. And he's a, he's a church planter in Washington, D.C. And he's, he's reached hundreds, if not thousands of people for Christ. But one of the reasons why I would, I would require this book is not just for the content in it. My favorite page in the entire book is the dedication page. Because in the dedication page, Thabiti dedicates the book to people and groups of people that God used to bring him to faith in Christ. And it, it, was, a, it was a powerful reminder to me that, that as I'm leading these teams into these Muslim contexts, we may see people come to Christ, we may not. We are gonna have opportunity to, to witness and to share the good news of Jesus. And I want my people to be assured that no gospel conversation is wasted. And that God, wherever you are on the line, you could be the first person to share with somebody, you could be the 50th person to share. At some point along that line, God's gonna use that conversation after conversation after conversation to bring somebody to faith in Christ. And so what Thabiti does here is he, the first, the first person he dedicates this to, and this is amazing, he says, to a faithful street preacher whose name I do not know, who heard all of my anti-Christian arguments and responded with gospel clarity and love. To Derek and Sean who prayed with concern that I might not be eternally lost through my sin and unbelief and that the Lord would rescue me from Islam. To a young freshman, uh, a young man in my freshman dorm, Dwight, who endured with patience my opposition and lived joyfully and faithfully for the Lord amid a building full of freshman pagans. Uh, and then he ends with this one. And to the Lord of glory who used all of these human vessels to tell me the good news of his love. I just wanna, I wanna leave this with you today. If you are here this morning and you're an unbeliever like Thabiti was, it may be this is the first time you've ever heard this. Maybe the first time in your recollection you've ever heard that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, that he wants to save you and change you. And, and for whatever reason, that's clicked in your heart. And if that's true, you need to, you need to trust in Christ. You need to believe. There's a care and prayer room uh, off to the side out here when, when I get done praying here in a second and we dismiss, go into that room and talk to somebody and say, I, I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ. But you could be here and you could be like Thabiti in that you've heard this over and over and over again from so many different messengers, from so many different vessels. And, and, and now for some reason today, like Lydia, maybe all of a sudden the light's gone on, something's clicked and you, you see the gospel and you understand the gospel differently than you have before. And if that's you, you need to believe. You need to put your faith in Christ and see that you're here not by accident. You're here because the Lord of glory wanted you here and wanted, to hear, wanted you to hear this message and wanted to open your heart to believe. And if that's you, then you need to go talk to somebody in the care and prayer room and say, I want to put my faith in Christ as my savior. But maybe you're here and you're like this street preacher. You're like, one of those men, those young men in the freshman dorm, you're somebody who, who you know somebody who's not a believer, a friend, friend or family member, a coworker, and you've prayed for them, and you've shared with them, or maybe you just know that you need to. And I just want to encourage you, don't give up. Keep at it. Be bold. Overcome the discomfort. 
because you never know when the Lord of glory might use that to open somebody's heart. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for every single person here. I pray for anybody here who's not a believer in Christ that you would open their eyes to see Jesus, to see the truth of the gospel, the good news of his salvation, and that they would reach out to somebody before they leave and that they would ask, how can I come to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And Father, I, I pray for anybody in this room who is a believer. I pray right now you'd bring to mind friends and family members, coworkers and people on the ball team and just people that they know that they don't know where they stand with you. Father, I pray that you would help encourage them and embolden them to pray and invite and to share with their relational network and that they'll trust, that we'll all trust, Lord, that there, there is no person in this world that we can categorize as likely or not likely to respond to the gospel. That if we'll do our part and we'll share about your goodness, you will do your part and you will make people new. Father, encourage us with these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.